The scripture reading today is from the book of Jeremiah and the Gospel of Luke. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. A reading from Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. A reading from the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then, there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Great and loving God, we thank you for these words of life this morning. We ask that you would uh, open our ears to hear these words and open our hearts that we might see you. In Jesus' name, amen. I still remember the first moment that I came to realize that coffee cake does not include coffee that it is just cake that you happen to have with coffee. Now, in, you have to cut me a little slack here because I was just a kid in college, and uh, uh, I asked, I just blurted out this question without thinking in front of my friends who laughed and shamed me for weeks on end. Um, but I, I just remember thinking, like, all my life, and it, and it wasn't like I had never had coffee cake before. I just simply thought, wow, they're really stingy with the coffee. 
Or maybe coffee is really expensive. It wasn't. I mean, this is the era of Folgers and Taster's Choice instant coffee, so it's, that wasn't the reason. But I just remember being, it was such a revelation to me that to kind of come out of this mode of thinking was highly disruptive and difficult. And there's a moment like this that we encounter in the story that we just heard read this morning uh, from the Gospel of Luke. There's a synagogue ruler, a religious leader, who is so stuck in his way of looking at the world and looking at people that he has an impossible time seeing what is right before his eyes. And I, I think what the lesson of this scripture reading for us today, what God wants us to hear, what God wants us to walk out of those doors with today, is God wants us to do better. And for us to do better, I think we have to just pay attention to two emotions that arise out of this text this morning. Um, the anger over one day, that's going to be the first point of the sermon, and then the compassion for 18 years. If we can pay attention to and learn more about the anger over one day and the compassion for 18 years, I think we'll have made some strides in understanding what God wants us, how God wants us to better, to do better. And so first, this anger over a day. Let us try to understand before, without condemnation or looking down on the synagogue leader, let's try to understand his anger. Where is it coming from? Well, it's important for us to understand the centrality I mean, of the Sabbath, the day of observance, the day of remembering what God, how God had ordered creation and how God wanted his people to live in the world, the ways in which they were supposed to be set apart, the ways in which God would, uh, would be able to bless them because they were opening themselves up to God's to God's blessing, to God's goodness, and to all the gifts that God wanted them to enjoy. And that was by way of the Sabbath. Uh, and in many ways, for the synagogue ruler, this was his responsibility. This was the time when the people gathered in the synagogue, and this was the way in which he was able to exercise his religious and spiritual responsibility. He might have thought about the slippery slope this would, uh, this would unleash, I mean, what would happen next week if people got wind of this, that the synagogue, that the Sabbath day was supposed to be a day for healing, and, and what, kinds of, what kinds of throngs and crowds might gather looking for, desiring that kind of healing? And if you listen to his words, there's actually some there's rational sense behind what he says. There are six days. There are six days when you can come and be healed. But, but this one day that God has set aside is for Sabbath rest. There is something seductively rational about his argument. Um, it reminds me of a story from uh, when, uh, many years ago. A friend of mine was moving from uh, Portland, the Portland area, to, down to Southern California. And she was, her mom was helping her to, to make that drive. And uh, I remember... They left like sometime mid-afternoon because their plan, I would advise against it, but their plan was to just kind of have a leisurely drive in the late afternoon and uh, early evening, have a nice dinner somewhere, and then drive through the night and arrive at the break of dawn, you know, by, by morning. And um, so that was their grand plan. 
And uh, I remember getting a call from them the next day asking, okay, well, how much, how much progress have you made? Where are you? And they were like, well, we've driven through the night and we're back in Portland. And, you know, I was just completely flabbergasted. What happened? Well, it turns out uh, the plan went well uh, um, until about midnight or a little past midnight. You know, they, they drove, they made lots of great progress, they had dinner and and they were having a great time, uh, mother and daughter time. And then somewhere around midnight, they stopped. They came off of Interstate 5, got gas. And instead of going back on Interstate 5 heading south, they went back on Interstate 5 heading north. And so they were just reversing all the progress they had made over the course of the afternoon and evening. Now, we can laugh about this today. But in that moment, that was no laughing matter, right? <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and, and just think about this. Now, they're driving through the night, and I'm sure there were moments. I mean, because we all have this, right? especially on long road trips. Am I on the right path? Am I going the right way? And I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine that there were moments when in the, in the darkness of the night, they saw that Interstate 5 sign and said, we're on the right path. And they were. They just happen to be heading in the wrong direction. And in many ways, this is the scenario in which we find the synagogue ruler. He's on the right path. He's being obedient to a set of rules that he has inherited, that he has been taught, that he has been teaching the people in a synagogue, his flock, his followers, his students. He's on the right path, but he's moving in the wrong direction. He's not looking in the right direction. In the very moment he thinks that he is doing God's will and teaching people about God's will, he is leading them astray. He himself is being led astray. He is blind to Jesus and the work of Jesus, the work of God unfolding right before his eyes. Now, at one level, this is a strange story because um, people are just kind of talking past each, each other. So the synagogue ruler doesn't directly address Jesus, doesn't really talk to the woman, kind of speaks over her, around her. And <clears throat> commentators would say things like, well, it's pretty obvious that Luke is not <clears throat> telling the story exactly as it happened. There's a term one of the commentators uses. It's called, he calls it novelistic coloration. I'm not sure I understand exactly what he means by that. But I think what he's saying is, you know, like, uh, and this happens a lot of times in New Testament theology. The gospel writers or the New Testament writers, for the sake of a theological agenda, are bending the historical narrative a little bit. And this is actually a very orthodox kind of way of thinking about how people told stories back then. Because it was not so much about fidelity to the facts, but it was about faithfulness to the spirit and the meaning of the Jesus event and of the truths that God was revealing to his people. Now, I think there's ways in which as, as students of this text, we can sort of fall into that way of understanding the text. But I actually think that Luke is being pretty straightforward here. And the woman's experience, now, in many ways, we can't really understand this story until we put ourselves in the place of this woman. Because, you know, she was used to people talking about her, but not directly to her. It was, you, you and I might say, well, that's a very condescending thing to have this person and to not, not directly look at her or to address her. But that was 
exactly the point for the synagogue ruler. She was not deserving of his attention. She was not deserving of him speaking to her directly. This was her experience, to be overlooked, to be, uh, to be invisible, to be erased in the eyes of society, to be told, to be told in the presence of all by this spiritual ruler, there is one day, never mind this flesh and bone person who is made in the image of God, beloved of God, there is one day that God has called us to be holy, to be obedient to this rule. And don't you dare deviate from that code of holiness, from that path of obedience. And what the synagogue ruler does, which I think for many of us who have grown up in religious traditions can understand and have also participated in, what the synagogue ruler does is he minimizes, he erases the experiences of people because there is a higher calling, a higher faithfulness. Never mind that the world condemns you. you your eyes are fixed on something larger, on something higher, on something more divine, and God will reward you for it in the end. And the mistake that often gets made in those kinds of moments is that we overlook the ordinary. We miss the obvious. You know, this past summer, one of the great joys uh, for our family was making lots of day trips around the San Francisco Bay Area. I think that's one of the blessings of living here. So we drove a lot, and uh, we listened to lots of books on tape. And one of, the, one of the highlights for me was a book by Alan Gratz um, called Refugee. It's a beautiful book, and our entire family enjoyed it. Or we're really struck and challenged um, by this profound and beautiful and haunting story. And it's, about, it's, the, it's a story of three characters, three main characters, who live in different times. So there's 12-year-old Joseph Landau, who lives in Berlin, 1938. There is Isabel Fernandez, who lives in Havana in 1994. And there is Mahmoud Bishara, who lives in Aleppo in 2015. And the common strand that ties these characters and these stories together is that they are all refugees. And one of the really interesting kind of, kind of narrative arcs here is that there is a character fleeing Germany to head to Cuba. And there is a character fleeing Cuba to head to America. And there is a character fleeing Syria to head to Germany over the course of many decades, over the course of perhaps a century. And I think one of the, the lessons that we learn from the story is that sometimes, or oftentimes, things just don't change. That people often, too often, live their lives on the run. But there's this really challenging and insightful section in the book I want to share with you. And it goes like this. This is um, on the part, the part about Mahmoud, Mahmoud uh, Bishara, where he says, They only see us when we do something they don't want us to do, Mahmoud realized. The thought hit him like a lightning bolt. When they stayed where they were supposed to be, in the ruins of Aleppo, or behind the fences of a refugee camp, people could forget about them. 
But when refugees did something they didn't want them to do, when they tried to cross the border into their country or slept on the front stoops of their shops or jumped in front of their cars or prayed on the decks of their ferries, that's when people couldn't ignore them any longer. And the wonderfully incisive thing about Luke's narrative here is that in the very moment when the synagogue ruler can no longer ignore this woman who has been erased for all intents and purposes for so long in her life, in in that very moment, he still somehow manages to minimize her pain, to erase her life experience. There are six days on which to be healed. Come back on one of those days, but not this day, not this day of holiness. And I want, you, I want to invite you to think about what, what that experience was like for this woman. How insulting it was. How it rendered her invisible. But I also want you to think about how it was actually business as usual. It was, we might argue about it, we might recoil against it, but it was something that she was altogether used to. There's a line from the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic. What is the most wondrous thing in the world? Yudhisthara. And Yudhisthara replied, the most wondrous thing in the world is that all around us, people can be dying. And we don't realize it can happen to us. For this religious leader, it was so easy for him to fall back on his system of piety, of spirituality, of religious fidelity. It was so easy for him to choose the path of obedience in that moment and completely overlook the suffering, the healing, the joy, the holy intermingling of all of those experiences in that moment. So there it is. The anger over a day. But there's more in this text. There is the compassion for 18 years. And we've got to hear this part too. Because compassion is the capacity, here's one definition, is the capacity to see clearly into the nature of suffering. And so at the very center of this text, it's almost kind of there Textually, in the middle of this text is the anger over one day, over the violation of one day. But before and after, in the narrative structure of this story, before the anger and after the anger, there is Jesus Christ who has compassion for 18 long years. In verse 12, we are told that Jesus sees this woman. This woman who was so used to just getting by in life without being noticed, without being taken uh, into account. Jesus sees this woman. In verse 12, we're told that he not only sees her, but he calls her. And he talks to her. He addresses her. And then in verse 13, not, not only does he see her and talk to her, but in verse 13, he touches her. He reaches out his hand in front of a gasping crowd, and he touches her. It's a transformative moment, experience for this person who has been erased 
for so much of our life, who is being lifted up, who is being lifted up not as an object lesson for ridicule, not as an object lesson of this is what happens to you when you don't live your life according to God's purposes, not in a way to condemn. But here's a person who is lifted up, and Jesus is doing a wondrous and beautiful thing with her. So Jesus sees her, he calls her, he touches her, and then you know what he does in verse 15? He goes to bat for her. He battles for her. Now, for many of us, we don't, I missed this too, but if you look carefully, now most of Jesus' hearers would have caught wind of this right away. Because what you have here is a really sophisticated biblical battle going on. The, the synagogue ruler has just cited Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 13. There are six days on which you can work. On the, Sabbath, on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, you shall reserve that time for rest. Right? Slam dunk argument. What Jesus does, he says, oh, but you forgot verse 14. And verse 14 says, you shall give rest to your ox and to your donkey. But you don't do that. You are a hypocrite. He calls the synagogue ruler out. He says, I see your Deuteronomy 5.13, and I raise you, Deuteronomy 5.14. I will battle you. I will go to bat for this woman. You shall not shame her with your scripture quoting. Reminds me of a time when I was a, um, a little kid. Uh, spent a lot of days, weeks, months saving up for a skateboard. Finally got it. And I was just ecstatic, just out of my mind, happy about this. And I remember taking uh, that skateboard down the street to the Catholic school and was just playing basketball by myself. And then these two older guys came onto the playground. And I was kind of nervous, a little bit suspicious. And they were kind of whispering amongst themselves. And and I was thinking, what do I do? Do I just, you know, do I run home? What do I do? They come over and they say, hey, can we play with you? I feel a little bit of relief. And I say, sure. And they were playing. And then one of the guys, the, uh, he, he shoots the ball and he way overshoots it. And I'm running towards the ball. And I've got a big grin on my face. I think, I, I can take these guys. I turn around and they are hightailing it out of there. And they've got my brand new skateboard and they're running away with it. And I remember just wailing all the way back home. All the neighbors came out. My mom comes out. What happened? And she, I had never seen my mom move so fast. She mobilized the neighbor to drive for us. She says, get in the back of the car. She gets in the passenger seat. And she's out, we're out there uh, driving around the neighborhood looking for these boys. And we're driving for like, I don't know, five, ten minutes. It felt like hours to me. We see them. And then my mom says, stop right here to this neighbor woman who's been driving us. She gets out of the car. She runs towards those boys. And I don't know what she's yelling, but she's yelling something. And then she comes back with my skateboard. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, at some point later, like, I asked her, like, what did you say to those guys? She's like, I don't know. Something like, you know, we called the cops. We've, the, the, the police are swarming the neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> We've got you surrounded, stuff like that, right? But I remember feeling that night like, my mom really loves me. I, I remember thinking, she risked her life <laughs> for me and my skateboard. And I remember, I mean, that's, that's one of the most concrete experiences of love that I can recall from my childhood. When I think about that moment, it helps me, when I think about that moment, it helps me to understand 
what Jesus is doing here in this passage for this woman. When he goes to bat for her, when he sticks his neck out on the line for her, when he risks his reputation for her, he battles for her. It doesn't stop there, though, because he goes on, he goes on to honor her. He says, this daughter of Abraham, it was right, it was fitting, of course, of course I was going to heal her on this day, on the Sabbath day. There was no better time, there was no better place. And did you catch what Jesus says? He says, she's been like this for 18 long years. It's almost as if he, he, he felt her pain. And he felt her shame. Or the shaming that others had heaped upon her. And he loved her. He saw her. He healed her and then he honored her. Dear friends, what do you think that felt like? What do you think it felt like for this woman to be on the receiving end of all of Jesus' actions on that day. Well, let me just try to wrap it up for us like this. I think that the core message of this text, as we think about what does it mean for us, what does it mean for our world, the core teaching of this text is this. God is not angry with you. God is not angry with the world. God is not angry with this one little thing or this one little moment or this one little lapse. Instead, what God experiences, what God shows when he sees us, the emotion that marks his movement and his action towards us is compassion. It's compassion for our long journey. It's sort of like that moment in 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah, the prophet Elijah, if you don't know the story, it's a fascinating story. It's got all kinds of theological conundrums in that story. But God comes to Elijah in, the mo- in a moment of suicidal despair, and God says to Elijah, hear these words, the journey is too much for you. Here, eat. Eat some bread baked over hot coals. Drink. Drink refreshing water. Dear friends, this is the good news today. There is a God who sees. There is a God who is calling out to you. There is a God who is reaching out towards you with his hand of gentleness and his hand of embrace and his hand of healing. There is a God who honors you by calling you his beloved, his daughter, his son, his child. The holy and divine gaze of God upon you is not anger. It is compassion. May we have the faith to hear these words as truth for us, as truth for our world. Let us pray. God, we thank you We thank you that you are, in the final word, not a God of anger, but a God of compassion. Not a God of judgment and wrath, 
but God, a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy and love that lifts up, that restores, that brings healing and wholeness to our lives and to our world. And we, God, we long, we long for this word to be true. We ask that you would move according to this word for us and for our world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.